Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome to ACE's podcast on the science behind vaccines, what the endocrine care team should know. My name is Vin Tank Precha. I'm the editor-in-chief of Endocrine Practice, and I'm the host of today's podcast. The goal of this podcast is to provide scientific information to endocrinologists and the endocrine care team about ACE-recommended vaccines so that they are prepared for patients' questions about hesitancy towards vaccinations. This podcast is provided by ACE through the grant Specialty Societies Advancing Adult Immunizations, funded by the CDC and coordinated through the Council on Medical Specialty Societies. Today, we have the honor and pleasure of hosting one of the world's experts on vaccines, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's the Distinguished Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Emory Department of Medicine, Emory School of Medicine. He's the Interim Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and Chief Academic Officer for Emory Healthcare. He's the current president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. His work focuses on research and policy development surrounding global health infections, including crises like COVID-19 and HIV. He's published over 500 papers and 30 book chapters. You may recognize his voice. You've, you, many of us have seen him on CNN and many different news shows. He's really been the number one outstanding spokesperson about COVID-19 and vaccinations. So we're so delighted to have Dr. Del Rio here today talking us through different vaccines for patients with diabetes. So, Carlos, as you expect, there's a lot of questions about vaccines and what they do for patients, especially patients with diabetes. Can you first talk about how vaccine recommendations are made, especially for this uh, population? As you may or may not know, the ACE recommendations follow the CDC guidelines for vaccinations for adults. So how does an organization like CDC make guidelines for vaccinations? First of all, let me say then that thank you very much for the invite and thank you to ACE for having me here. Vaccines, as you know, are amazing, right? Our vaccines have allowed us to get rid of, of many diseases and really significantly decrease the impact of many diseases. I remember speaking to my dad many years ago, who was born in the late 1920s, about what it was like to live with polio, right? When polio was endemic and where in the summertime you would hear about polio outbreaks and your parents wouldn't let you go to the local swimming pool. And then you come back to school in the fall and two or three kids had dropped out of the class because now they were in iron lungs or they were paralyzed because of polio. So the, the appearance of vaccines has changed diseases like polio in incredible ways. And, and we tend to forget how incredible this vaccination has been there's always an interest in trying to find newer and better vaccines. And when we think about the original, the first vaccines, for example, the smallpox vaccine, when Janner developed them, it was basically, you know, taking stuff out of the vesicle of somebody with, with smallpox and sort of inoculating into somebody. Or when we think about how the rabies vaccine was developed, the same thing. So at the beginning, we had vaccines of what we call, even now we have vaccines that we call 
you know, live inactivated viral vaccines. And those are vaccines that contain the live virus, but has been inactivated. The polio vaccine used to be like that. And the oral polio vaccine was a live inactivated virus vaccine. And those vaccines work very well, but they obviously have risks. And they particularly have risks for immunosuppressed individuals. So people that have severe immunosuppression, for example, people with HIV should not be receiving live attenuated virus vaccines. Then we had sort of the next step, which is the vaccines that are made with kill virus, whole kill viruses or whole kill bacteria. Those tend to be a little safer. They also tend to be maybe a little less immunogenic. Then you have the subunit vaccines. And those are vaccines, for example, made like the hepatitis B vaccine. And would you take a certain protein, the surface protein, and you create an, a vaccine using that, right? And then you have sort of this new technology vaccines. And the new technology vaccines are the mRNA vaccines that we became familiar with COVID because those are really sort of the next generation technology vaccines in which you take the part of the bacteria that is immunogenic and then you put it into an mRNA and then you let the cells in the body start producing the protein and then stimulate the immune system that way. So how do we develop a vaccine? Well, you know, this is a very complicated process. First starts with the science, the basic science of trying to, to understand what is the part of the bacteria, the virus or that is immunogenic and that is going to provide protective immunity. After that, you go and you have to then be able to put it in a vehicle that will allow it to be injected or given to an individual so the immune system will recognize that protein and react to that protein. And then once you can do that, then you start moving into phase one, phase two trials. And those are primarily about safety and immunogenicity. And I tell people that a lot of the focus is around safety. Is this a safe substance that we're going to keep to individuals? Why? Because vaccines tend to be given to people who are healthy. And you don't want to give somebody healthy something that is going to make them sick. After you can guarantee that something is safe and immunogenic, you move to phase three, which is a clinical, sort of large clinical trials of efficacy. And this is where you really test, is the vaccine protective? Does it make a difference? Yes, no. The results of those large phase three trials are the ones that then are used by, there's several committees. One of them is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice at CDC. The other one is the, the VRPAC and, and the FDA. The, uh, and those committees review the information, and then the FDA one advises the FDA whether this biological can be approved or not. And then CDC, ACIP takes that recommendation. And again, the ACIP is not made of CDC employees. It's made of experts in infectious disease, experts in public health from around the country who review the data and then make the recommendations based on that. And the recommendations are then given to the CDC director who can accept them or not and then implement them. So it's, it's a multi-step process, and it's a redundant process with multiple committees, because at the end of the day, you want independent evaluation, independent committees, and you want both the FDA and the CDC to provide their opinion. A lot of the focus of the FDA is around safety. A lot of the focus of CDC is around efficacy and public health impact. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. You answered a lot of questions. Do you mind if I just read what's recommended for ACE guidelines for diabetes and just have your thoughts. I assume you will agree. So for patients with diabetes, ACE recommends influenza, pneumococcal, hepatitis B, Tdap, which is tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis, COVID-19, and varicella. Do you agree with that? Or is there anything missing that you might add to that list too? Let's start by saying that the first thing is that we tend to really think about vaccine recommendations for children, right? I mean, children's pediatricians are really attuned to vaccinating kids. Uh, we're not very good as internists at vaccinating adults. 
We're not even good at vaccinating ourselves, quite frankly. We don't do a good job of taking the vaccines that are recommended and that we should be taking. A lot of the vaccination for adults depends really on your age. Mm-hmm. In general, for adults over the age of 19, COVID vaccines, uh, influenza vaccine, Tdap, that especially tetanus, diphtheria components are really important. And like Tdap should be given about every 10 years. Influenza, as you know, every year. And, and COVID, we're moving to about every year or so. Then there's other vaccines that, uh, that adults need. Young adults, for example, will really benefit from, from HPV vaccination, right? HPV vaccination really makes a big difference. The human papillomavirus is a major cause of, of cervical cancer, of anal cancer, of other uh, oral cancers. And, and young sexually active people can really, I mean, we could get rid of cervical cancer if we vaccinated people. There's also vaccines against hepatitis, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, and there's vaccines against meningitis, especially for young adults going to college. It's important that they get the meningococcal vaccine. And then you have the vaccines for those that are over the age of 50, like you and me. And there you start talking about vaccines, for example, the shingles vaccine, the uh, pneumococcal vaccine, and other vaccines people should be getting. There are multiple groups of individuals that require or may require additional vaccinations. Pregnant women is one group that, in addition to those vaccines, uh, the importance of them getting Tdap is a protection against whooping cough. Uh, They need to get influenza. They need to get covid But people who are uh, immunosuppressed with multiple diseases, like, for example, that diabetes being one of them, or HIV, a group of individuals that that should get what we talked about, should get Tdap, should get influenza vaccine, should get COVID regularly. Then there's people like us, like healthcare workers. We are required to have, you know, influenza every year. Mm -hmm. We're required to have hepatitis B up to date. We're required to have measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, varicella, and some of us are required to take meningococcal vaccine. And then there's vaccines you give to international travelers, right? Uh, those are different vaccines. And then there's other groups of vaccines. So if your diabetic patient is also a traveler, the kind of vaccines they'll get yeah. are different. If your diabetic patient is also a healthcare worker, they'll have to get additional vaccines. So you really have to look at vaccines for different, not only what disease of the individual have, you have to take into consideration the age, the underlying conditions, and then the job the individual is doing. That's a great answer. I think that's very helpful. I think you're right. We can't just say, oh, take this list and see you later. We have to dig in deeper what the person's doing in age and other comorbid conditions. But again, I emphasize that we are not doing a great job vaccinating adults, right? I mean, the data shows that most people eligible to, for example, get the shingles vaccine have not received it. The data shows that in our country every year, maybe about 45% of adults get an influenza vaccine. We have to do a better job getting the, the people immunized. And I tell you, every year uh, during the winter, I'm rounding at Emory or at Grady, and I see somebody, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who didn't get an influenza vaccine, who has severe influenza, sometimes even in the ICU. And I say, oh, my God, this is a missed opportunity. This is somebody who could have not been here had they gotten their vaccine. Well, that's why we need your help, Carlos. We see these patients all the time in clinic. How do you, we address this issue with patients, especially our diabetes patients who are at high risk from increased mortality from getting a disease that could be easily prevented? How do we tell our patient how important this is and how do we describe that the safety really outweighs the risks? Well, as, as I tell people, there, there are a couple things. Number one is I emphasize to people 
as, as somebody who's a vaccine researcher, that safety is a big component of the clinical trials and vaccine. We really want safe vaccines. And if there's any sign of not having safety, you know, those vaccines don't move forward. Now, nothing is 100% safe, but, you know, there was a rotavirus vaccine that was given to kids to prevent diarrhea that caused immune susception. That was discontinued. There was many years ago an influenza vaccine that caused Guillain-Barre. That was discontinued. So there could be side effects of vaccines, but in general, vaccines that are approved are incredibly safe. The second thing is I remind patients of the risk-benefit ratio, right? And, and when you talk about diabetes, I think about diabetes, we know very well it's a risk factor for severe disease in COVID and in influenza. You know, not getting your vaccine, it's, it's almost like not taking your insulin or taking your metformin or whatever medication. You may not notice it immediately, but you're putting yourself at higher risk by not doing that. And the vaccine is really the best prevention you have, the best way to protect you against many of those diseases that we talked about. You know, hepatitis B. Uh, I've seen people, you know, go on to develop liver cancer or cirrhosis as a consequence of hepatitis B, something that could have been avoided with a vaccine. We call the hepatitis B vaccine or the HPV vaccine as cancer preventing vaccines because they are. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in this a lot this year. There's been so much information about the COVID-19 vaccine, and many of your patients are very hesitant because they hear that it could cause heart issues or cause, I don't know. Uh, how do we talk to our patients about the risk-benefit ratios you were describing? What do we tell patients? Because everyone's very concerned. This is a, They hear new technology, they think it's experimental, and they're concerned. So how do you dispel those concerns? I dispel them by telling them that among the highest groups of individuals vaccinated are physicians, right? Our healthcare providers. If we knew this was unsafe, we wouldn't be taking. I wouldn't expose myself to something that was not safe. I wouldn't expose my family to something that wasn't safe. Number two, we also tell people, like, look at the number of doses that have been given. I mean, the U.S. up to now, we've given over 50 million doses of COVID vaccine. Globally, the numbers are even larger. No other vaccine has been administered so quickly to so many people. And yeah, there are some side effects. You have to, first of all, say, yeah, there's some side effects. For example, heart disease, you can get something called a myocarditis or pericarditis as a consequence of the vaccine. But the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, it's much higher in young men. But even in young men, the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis from the disease is higher than that of the vaccine. And I'll give you the example of my niece. My niece, who's in her 20s, she got COVID, and she developed the myopericarditis as a consequence of COVID. So the side effect of the vaccine could also be the side effect of the disease, and the side effect of the disease may, in fact, be more severe than that of the vaccine. In, in fact, it is, and it's also more frequent. Mm, that's a good point. So the disease itself can cause the side effect, not, and in the, the vaccine itself, the risk might be yeah. even lower. I mean, in the disease, we call it a complication, right? That's true. Yeah, that's a good point about the physicians. I mean, every, as you know, everyone at, at our institution is vaccinated. I have my five shots, so, and I agree, we wouldn't all take the vaccine if we didn't think it was safe. Could you talk a little bit more about the mRNA technology? I think a lot of patients are concerned, like, why couldn't this be developed using other technologies? Everyone hears, oh, no, mRNA. They hear mRNA, they think DNA or something, that you're alternating your DNA or something, and they don't want to take something that's new and they want to be reassured more. So is there something special about COVID that had to be used, that had to use the mRNA technology or 
or that was going to be the new technology anyway? Well, first of all, it's a technology that had been studied for some time, trying to find more effective ways to vaccinate. And the people that have done this research were really looking at ways to get a protein. As I said, part of developing a vaccine is getting that immunogenic component and putting it into, into the body. For influenza vaccines, for years, we have actually used eggs. We have actually used Mm-hmm. Uh, chicken eggs, uh, you know, in order to grow the virus in there and create the immune, immune, the antigen. And if you remember during the 2009 influenza pandemic, by the time we had isolated the virus and knew what needed to go into the vaccine against that virus, all the eggs had been committed and were already being used for other vaccines. So we had to first wait for the hands to put eggs so we can develop the vaccine. And I think at that point in time, the government, the NIH researchers said, you know, next time we have a pandemic, we can't be waiting for eggs to cash. We need to have different technologies. And looking at different technologies, two major technologies emerge. One is what we call the vector technology. Mm-hmm. And what you take the part of the virus and you put it into another virus, uh, typically an adenovirus virus, which is a cold virus. And you use that, that virus as the one that that stimulates the production of the antigen. That's the technology that has been used for the Janssen and Janssen vaccine, the J&J vaccine, and also for the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It's a vector vaccine. The mRNA technology was used for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And there you take the protein and you put it inside the body by putting it inside a cassette or an mRNA. This technology took a long time to develop because it wasn't stable. The mRNA was rapidly denatured when it went to the body and it wasn't stable enough to create a vaccine, but really a lot of excellent work by many people, including, you know, Kate Corico and, and David Weissman and others were able to stabilize the, the, the mRNA and be able to then be used for vaccination. This is not a simple technology to explain and trying to explain it to the general public. I was fortunate enough to be able to work with, uh, with the producers or family guy <laughs> to show it later. The YouTube video that we developed with family guy, try to explain COVID vaccination. And I think it's pretty good. It's a really good way to explain okay. what the mRNA technology is and how the vaccine is administered. Great. Is it accurate to say that it really doesn't matter what technology is used? It's the trials that show that it's safe and efficacious that what really should worry about, right? Correct. Absolutely correct. Now, we know that, you know, like in cars, right? Not all cars, not everybody's created equal, right? So you have the immunogenicity and the, the the level of immunogenicity that you get from one vaccine may be a little different than the other. But, you know, up to now, for me, COVID was so different that people started talking about these things. I mean, I never had anybody come to me and say, you know, what flu vaccine should I get? Should I get the Pfizer one or should I get the, the Sanofi one? You know, that doesn't happen. Yeah. But one of the things that happened is that all of a sudden, people started talking about brands and, and technology and trying to pick what would be better and what you know they would rather take. And quite frankly, anything that the FDA and the CDC approve is good. I think someone said, I might have been Fauci, said the best vaccine is the one you can get in your arm the quickest. Correct. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting because when Emory started to vaccinate, I got an email and I had the opportunity to get my first shot in December of 2020. It was, you know, I think December 9th or 10th, somewhere around there, very early on. And I had been an investigator in the Moderna study, and I honestly wanted to get Moderna. So I wanted to wait. And my wife said, you know, this is a little bit like, do you want Pepsi or do you want Coke? I mean, you know, they're both soft drinks. <laughs> Just get, you're thirsty right now. Just take whatever you can get your arms on first, right? And my hands were, but first I got Pfizer. So I 
despite being a Moderna investigator, I received Pfizer and I'm perfectly happy with that. That's great. I know you touched upon this in your past talks about the timing, like how often and you should get your booster. How often do you think it's going to be in the future with the COVID-19 vaccine? What's your thoughts on this? Well, you know, we don't know all the answers, right? We're beginning to get some of the answers. I mean, clearly what's important is to have received your full series, which for some of us, quite frankly, I think that a full series is not two shots, but it's really three shots. And then to be up to date in your immunizations, which means getting your bivalent booster. And if you're there, you probably are fairly well protected against severe disease. You're not that well protected against infection. The data suggests that the protection against infection wanes fairly quickly. At the end of 12 to 15 weeks, you probably only have about a 20% protection against infection. But you continue to have even 15 months or more out, a very good protection against severe disease. Now, if you happen to have vaccinations, and in addition to that, got COVID, and that's what we call hybrid immunity, those people have the best protection ever. So mm -hmm. I'm not telling you to go out there and get infected. But if you happen to be infected and get vaccinated or got vaccinated and then got infected, you have something called hybrid immunity and you have really, really good protection. So when would you need your next shot? It's not, again, it's not a simple answer. It probably depends on whether you have hybrid immunity or not, whether you're up to date in your immunizations and how old you are. I mean, you know, right now at this point in time, if I see a 20-year-old male who was vaccinated and had COVID, I don't tell them you need to go out there and rush and get your next shot because they probably are pretty good protected. Mm -hmm. And that's why, as you know, we dropped their requirement. We never had a requirement for booster at Emory because we didn't think it was necessary. Mm -hmm. But if you're 70 year old, you better get your booster soon, right? You need to be boosted because the risk of you developing severe disease if you get infected is really high. That was the, uh, my next question. So you have a uh, older patient, you know, 70 who had COVID, got discharged from the hospital, they're going to, they commonly ask, when should I get my vaccine now or should I wait? What is your answer to that? My answer is to wait. We got fairly good data now that suggests that you probably don't get as good a response to the vaccine. First of all, you're protected. But mm -hmm. second, you probably don't get a good immune response to the vaccine if you vaccinate within the first 10 to 12 weeks after you had COVID. So I tend to tell people, like I saw somebody last week who was discharged from the hospital with COVID who had received his vaccines but hadn't been boosted. And I said, you know, wait another three months before you get your bivalent booster. Okay, great. That's helpful. Last few questions. You know, we often see patients and their families. What's your strategy to get the rest of the family vaccinated? Sometimes we're able to convince our patient to get vaccinated, but many other family members are very resistant. Is there any other tricks you could use to get the entire family vaccinated? Well, you know, I, I think a good one is to talk about what you do to protect your loved ones, right? And the kinds of things you need to do. Like, I remember influenza is a good example. My daughter said when she had a baby recently, she said, everybody that comes to be with a baby and hold a baby, etc., needs to be up to date in their Tdap and in their influenza vaccines because I don't want them to have something that they can give my baby. And I think that's a very important message, right? Mm -hmm. We want to, you as a household can dramatically decrease the risk to others, especially if you have an immunosuppressed person in your house. Like if you have somebody in your house who's at high risk of complications, the best thing you can do is protect everybody around them. And that could be someone with diabetes that's not well controlled and with some complications that's but you know but even if the person with diabetes is well controlled as we were talking about 
people with diabetes who get COVID have a very high risk of complications, right? Yeah. So that, so that's uh, a, re- a strong reason why the rest of the family need to get vaccinated then. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. That's good. That's very helpful. Well, do you have any final thoughts for our audience? This has been so helpful. I think you've answered a lot of our questions already. Any departing tricks, opinions, thoughts that you can give us? You know, the most important thing is for physicians to to tell their patients that they have been vaccinated, that they have received the vaccine. Not only COVID, but other vaccines. During during COVID, I had this button. I don't know if you can read it, but it says in Spanish, yo ya me vacuné, pregúntame. You know, I've already been vaccinated. Ask myself. Because I wanted my Hispanic patients who were maybe hesitant to get vaccinated to see this and say, hey, I haven't been vaccinated, ask me. And the other thing is get your patients to ask questions. It's okay to have questions, but get them to answer questions from credible sources. Because there's a lot of misinformation out there and people will read all sorts of misinformation and just get more confused. So providing your patients not only with information, but with credible sources of information, I think is critically important. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know you're very, very busy and you're all your different titles. I'm always happy to be with you. And on behalf of ACE, we are so fortunate and thank you for spending your time with us. Delighted to do this. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by ACE through the grant Specialty Societies Advancing Adult Immunizations funded by the CDC and coordinated through the Council on Medical Specialty Societies. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.